Good morning, church. It is a pleasure to welcome you today to our worship service. I invite you to open your Bibles to our New Testament, to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first one in the New Testament. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Becky and I love the strength and encouragement that comes from coming together with God's people. There's nothing like it on the planet. And uh, just the fellowship, the talking, the hugs, singing, and just the worship time together. And what do you think of our lobby out there? Like that. Man, what an upgrade. What a facelift. Mark Colby, Jill Cristeo, and others on our staff have helped lead that so well. And we are so pleased with how it's turning out. Lord willing, it'll be completely done uh, in the next month or so. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. By the way, 500 years ago this weekend, long ways away from here in Germany, there was an event that became a change point in Western culture. Um, the event took place at an imperial diet. I don't know if you know what an imperial diet is. It's a formal meeting, uh, a council, seminar, summons, conference. We really don't have anything like it in, in our day, but an imperial diet. These were held occasionally throughout the Roman Empire. And in 1521, there was an imperial diet at the German city of Worms. This thing went on for four months. These were long extended events. The emperor had to be there. Princes, nobles, cardinals, bishops, on and on and on. These were huge events. It is said that at least 10,000 people were in Worms for this event, this imperial diet. Uh, what's so interesting for our purposes is that 500 years ago this weekend, uh, the diet was coming to a close, had about a month left to go, and a German monk who had been recently excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church named Martin Luther was causing a huge uproar. And he had been condemned as a heretic at, in the Catholic Church the year before. And so his case automatically bumped to the emperor, Charles V. And so he was, Luther was sort of an add-on to this diet at the end. I mean, he was invited and uninvited, and he was sort of summoned. And, and finally, he ended up showing up. And it was a very memorable moment. Uh, the background is why he was there. He was excommunicated for a number of reasons, but one of the big ones was his insistence that this book, the Bible, took precedence and was God's only word to us, and it took precedence over popes and councils, over popes and councils. And so that got him into big trouble. And on April 18th, 1521, which was 500 years ago today, Luther addressed the council after being accused by John Eck, the council prosecutor, with these famous words. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. The scholars debate whether the here I stand was a later edition. Some say yes, no, but... My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. As far as Luther knew, he would be killed. 
but he nonetheless said, this is what my stand is. That is the same stand we have here at our church, in case you're visiting or you're newer. That is why every Sunday about this time, we open the Bible to see what God has said. We do not open the Quran. We do not open the Bhagavad Gita. And we don't open the Book of Mormon. We open the Bible because we believe it alone is God's spoken word to mankind. And it is infallible, inspired, and inerrant. That leads us this morning to this section. We are currently in about a four-month series in the letter to the Corinthian church. This is not Paul's first letter to them. We know that because he's answering questions from a previous letter. But it's our first letter we have in the, canon, the canonical scriptures, the canon of scriptures. So we call it 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Calling this wise words to a hurting church. It's a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> this church wasn't just hurting, it was a train wreck. It was less than five years old. Paul had helped start this church. It was his baby. He loved these people. He loved this congregation. And this thing was going over the cliff. There were lawsuits. There was sexual perversion. There were divisive attitudes and infighting. And it was a mess. And hence our two letters. Uh, in fact, we have more words of Paul to this congregation than anyone else he wrote to in the New Testament. So this morning we're going to dive in. We're in chapter 4. And it is a chapter where he hits pride head on. And his thesis is pretty simple. Divisive, prideful attitudes were absolutely destroying this church. Judgmental, critical, pride-filled people and their attitudes, the cancer of pride was eating this church from the inside out. So we're going to dive in. We'll see two things in this chapter. First, he's going to confront them about their pride, about their spiritual wisdom, thinking that they were so wise, so esteemed, so, so, uh, and such great discernment. They were so proud of that. And then secondly, their pride uh, about their spiritual status. But first of all, their pride about their spiritual wisdom. Now, interesting, when you look at a number of commentaries about 1 Corinthians 4, um, you see an interesting thing. You see that scholars suggest two themes for this chapter, which seem to be very different at first. A number of commentaries, in fact, even if you look at headings in English Bibles, like the heading in mine, over chapter 4 in the NIV says, the nature of true apostleship, which would be a little bit of an awkward sermon title. But a number of scholars suggest that the theme of this chapter is the role of Christian leaders or Christian leadership. you got another group of scholars saying, well, that's really not the theme of the chapter. The theme of the chapter is pride. As I sat there and stared at it doing my work the last week or two, I think there's both themes here. I think what Paul is doing is very clear. I think Paul is calling this church on the carpet for their critical attitude, their judgmental attitude, their pride-filled attitude towards their leaders. That's why you could say it's about leadership or it's about pride. But I think leadership is his, his, his illustration. It's his example he's using to demonstrate a deeper problem in this church. And it's a problem that manifests itself throughout this letter, and that is divisive, pride-filled attitudes. That's why. So I think chapter 4 is just his latest illustration, example, talking about their attitudes towards their leaders. Uh, one New Testament scholar, Thomas Schreiner, who's a first-class New Testament scholar at Southern Seminary down Louisville, has a newer commentary out of 1 Corinthians, said this about this chapter. The pride of the Corinthians is the primary concern. Another scholar wrote this, the Corinthians were proud and boastful. The cause of their factionalism was pride. 
It was that worldly carnal pride that caused the serious divisions that plagued the church. So Paul begins this chapter with a very strong rebuke about their arrogant pride in verses 1 to 7. He said this pride is showing up because they were being unusually critical, condescending and proud in their assessments of their leaders. So let me read verses 1 to 5 and then I'm going to I want to share make sure we're all clear what Paul is not saying and what he is saying. These are, it's, it's important to understand both. So verses 1 to 5. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries of God that God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. All right, first of all, sometimes it's helpful. What is not being said here? Because this can be tricky. So Paul is not suggesting that leaders are above criticism. He's not suggesting leaders are above being held accountable. In fact, in his letter to uh, Timothy, his first letter to Timothy in Ephesus, Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. First Timothy chapter 3, he has some criteria for which to evaluate men for the role of elder, and he's very clear that this, it's a high bar. So Paul, Paul is not suggesting leaders are somehow above accountability. He's also not saying leaders or ministries should never be evaluated or assessed or looked at or critiqued. He's also not saying that leaders should never be evaluated. Paul himself was very critical of Peter in Antioch in Galatians uh, chapter 2. Very critical of Peter. He also had very harsh words for the Galatian church in Galatians 1. Of all the 13 letters we have in our New Testament from Paul, you will not find a letter that opens more bluntly, more harshly than Galatians 1. You know, usually Paul starts out with some friendly words and greetings and Galatians 1 just opens up with rebuke, damnation. And the word he uses in Greek, anathema, it's the strongest Greek word you can have for God's damnation on you. Try your next email and open it with that. See how, how that goes to somebody. But that's how he opens the letter. So he's not saying ministries are above reproach. He's not saying churches should never be critiqued. He's also not saying uh, that you should never take self-inventory. This is the day we look at and celebrate the Lord's table together. Uh, one of the verses we sometimes read is 2 Corinthians 13, which Paul wrote. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Make sure you're in the faith. You're a real Christian. So Paul is not saying any of that. So what is he, what is he condemning then? He is condemning a church filled with professing Christians who were claiming in prideful, divisive, condescending, critical, judgmental ways that they were above their leaders and could assess their leaders' motives and the value of their ministry and their final reward and all of that. Thomas Schreiner, again, great New Testament scholar in his newer commentary, 1 Corinthians, I think of anything I read this last week, he had one sentence I thought that captured what this chapter was about. 
the Corinthians. And obviously, as any church, they're a mixture of true believers and not, but the church as a whole was attempting to determine the final reward to be assigned to Paul and Apollos as if the church had the capacity to determine the, the ultimate quality of their ministries. That's what Paul is confronting. And that's why he's saying to them, it's way out of line. They're judging motives. They're judging the, the ultimate quality of their ministry. Those are, th- those are things only God knows. Uh, verse 5, you see the word, therefore. And it's an old saying in biblical studies. You know, when you see the word therefore, you know, ask what it's there for. When you use the word therefore, you're summing something up, right? Yada, yada, yada. Therefore. We do that with our children. We do it with all kinds of people. Like I said, therefore. Paul's summing it up. And and when he does this, he's obviously getting ready to deliver here a stinging rebuke to this church. It alerts us to that. He's summing things up and he's going to deliver a threefold rebuke. So first of all, verse 5. He says they were judging God's leaders, his God's servants, for the wrong thing. Verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. That's what they're, they were judging motives. And they weren't judging Paul's behavior. Isn't that interesting? They're not calling Paul on the carpet for uh, immoral behavior or any other kind of sinful behavior. They're, they're judging motives and outcome and quality of his ministry overall and what his final you know, assessment from God would be and all that. So he said, you're judging the wrong thing. Secondly, you're judging by the wrong standard. You're not only judging the wrong thing in me, you're judging by the wrong standard. Verse 6, the first part. Brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. So they were going beyond what Scripture had said for evaluation of leaders and were judging their leaders by their own personal likes and dislikes and all kinds of stuff. And Paul said, that's inappropriate. You can only assess by what is written. So they're judging the wrong thing. They're judging by the wrong standard. And thirdly, they're judging by the wrong attitude. Each group in this church was tearing down leaders by comparing them to other leaders. And Paul said, that's an inappropriate attitude. The whole thing is inappropriate. He says that in verse 6, second part of it. Then you will be puffed up being a follower of one of us over against the other. So they're pitting leaders. Uh, again, you know, if you remember from the first chapter, opening chapters of this, you know, one follows Apollos, and one follows Christ, and one follows yada, 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 yada. And so right out of the chute as the letter opens, and he, he brings up that again in the middle of the letter here, that they were pitting leaders against each other. They were playing their favorites. They were all of this. And so Paul says, you're judging my motives. That's inappropriate. You're judging by the wrong standard. You're not even using scripture. You're using your own shallow likes and dislikes and preferences. And you have the wrong attitude. And then in verse 7, he fires off three rhetorical questions. Again, to confront their pride. Verse 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? There's question number one. What do you have that you did not receive? Question number two. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Question number three. See, you begin to see the issue of chapter four is the cancer of pride. Leadership is talked about here, but leadership is just the latest illustration of the whole problem underlying this church. 
Pride. Pride drives us to be cruel. It dri- and it's, it, it's probably the sin that is the most difficult to see in yourself. It's the sin that got Satan thrust out of heaven. It's probably the very first sin in the universe. Most agreed as the worst of sins. There are degrees of sin. And it drives us to be cruel, selfish, self-centered, greedy, dishonest, unwise, destructive, and just plain stupid. I've had people come up to me after worship services, you shouldn't say stupid in a worship service. There's sometimes it fits. Pride drives us, it drives me, it drives you to be foolish, to make incredibly foolish decisions. Even in just normal, basic, everyday decision-making. Maybe one of my favorite examples came from our motel that my parents owned years and years ago. And I actually called my dad this week. I was reminiscing with him on the phone. I said, do you remember this incident? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. So this is one of my favorite examples of the utter foolishness of pride. One night, we were way up in northern Michigan. Now, you, you all have a Michigan map with you, right? It's right here. It's a Michigan map. You always have it right there in your pocket. Just pull it out. Boom. Here our Michigan map. We lived up here, very tip of the mitten. It was one hour to Mackinac Island, and if you go past that, you go past St. Ignace, and then, boom, you're up into Canada. One night, late, later in the evening, a gentleman came in, and he'd been clearly driving north in I-75. From, he came in off the exit, and uh, he, we were right on the exit there, exit 279, and Gaylord, Michigan. And he asked a very interesting question. He said, said, uh, how much further is it to Pennsylvania? (laughs) That's no lie. And my dad at first was confused by the question, tried to clarify what the guy meant, asked him again, which way are you coming? Well, I, I, I came north. Coming up north, and I passed, you know, this town, this town. Oh, okay, it's very clear. He's going north, straight north on I-75. And Dad said, where are you going? I'm trying to get to Buffalo, New York. It's like, wow. So Dad said, well, why this route? Well, it's, a friend in Florida said, take I-75 home. Forgot to tell him, like, you should turn right in Cincinnati <laughs> or somewhere. So my dad literally... So just a minute, walks over, gets an atlas of the United States and opens it and says, do you, do you know where you're at? And shows him, you're here going in Pennsylvania. And the guy was horrified. His wife's in the car, by the way. You need to know that for the story. His wife's in the car. And he's horrified. And he said, oh, all day long my wife has been saying, would you please pull over and ask somebody for directions? And he said, I refused. He'd driven 500 miles out of his way because of his pride and his arrogance. And he had to go back out in the car and tell her, I bet it was a frosty night in that room. (laughs) He came back actually up to the office later, I think, to get some ice. And we asked him, how did it go? And he said, didn't go well. (laughs) That's pride. We, I mean, we can all, we laugh at that. That's all of us. We've all done that thing. Pride can just drive us to the dumbest, most foolish, destructive, dangerous, just 
you know, outright immoral decisions. Secondly, Paul calls them on the carpet for one more thing, beyond their own puffed up, exaggerated sense of their wisdom and discernment. He calls them on the carpet for their pride over their spiritual stature in life, status. Verses 8 to 13, now that he's confronted them about their pride over their wisdom and discernment, he gets in their face about their pride over their status. And here, once again, Paul's spiritual gift of sarcasm is on display. He could be a very sarcastic person. Verse 8, already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish you had really begun to reign so that you might also reign so that we might also reign with you for it seems to me that God has put us as apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena I mean Paul's saying that's our status we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as human beings we're fools for Christ but you're so wise in Christ that's just so sarcastic we're weak but you're so strong you're honored we're dishonored to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. Notice the description of ministry here, his ministry. We're hungry, thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, and we're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. That in itself is an interesting statement because menial labor, manual labor in that culture especially was very frowned on, looked down on. It's true a lot of places in Asia today for laborers. When, we're, when, you, when we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. That's Paul saying that's our status right up to this moment. I mean, notice the description of, of ministry here, especially what he was doing, you know, uh, brutally treated, hungry, thirsty, homeless, slandered. I mean, so much for the prosperity gospel. Never seen Joe Osteen preach something on that. And his point is, look, you got the Christian life all backwards, completely backwards, upside down. You couldn't have it more wrong, he's saying to them. And Paul says, scum of the world, verse 13. I looked up the Greek word and did a little play with it and tried to figure out. It's translated a number of different ways. It's translated dirt. It's translated the, 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 the scrap, scrap, scrapings off the bottom of your shoe. It's some, Luther, in his German translation, translated it trash. Uh, some garbage, refuse. You see, you get, you get the idea. This is, this is the junk nobody wants. And it was actually used as a term for the lowest classes of people in that culture in a derogatory way, very inappropriate. But that's, Paul picks, he picks up a word like that. You know, the junk on the bottom of your shoes that you scrape off and throw off? That's our status, he says. And you think you have this incredible reigning status. Who are you? Who do you think you are? People in this church needed to be reminded that following Christ is not a ticket to popularity. That's still a big misconception today. Quite to the contrary, it's about... Paul says, you want to follow Christ? It is about being labeled as the filth of society. Jesus himself came and was rejected 
Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be hated. Not easy to hear. So Paul rebukes them. Very interesting, in verses 14 to 17, the first part of his rebuke, there's a real tenderness to his words. He's talking as a father to a son. And you, you can feel it. I'm writing this, verse 14, not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. I mean, there's, there's heart here. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father in the gospel, through the gospel. That's heartfelt. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Jesus Christ, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Then he concludes, verses 18, 21. And he's a little more blunt here. Some of you have become arrogant. So see, that's, that's the theme of this chapter. As if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Paul calls them on the carpet for their pride, their pride over spiritual wisdom and over their spiritual status. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, as we come to the Lord's table, the, the summons is just pretty, pretty straightforward, and it is this. To be truly saved and to be delivered from the coming judgment that the Bible talks about regularly, we have to humble ourselves before God. There is no authentic conversion or salvation experience without that. Unfortunately, many sit in churches in the West thinking somehow because they're religious, read their Bibles, listen to sermons that they're saved. The Bible's very clear, that doesn't, that doesn't save us. Until we have been genuinely humbled before God and believed in His Son, the Bible's very clear, there is no salvation. So, just make this clear, the Bible says the only way to be forgiven of sin which is a huge problem for the human race. Everyone lives with this need of knowing guilt and the need to be forgiven. The only way to be forgiven, the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to avoid the coming judgment that the prophets speak of, that Jesus speaks of, that Paul speaks of, is to humble ourselves before God. You know, the Puritans had a, had a phrase, gospel humiliation. And what they meant was, a desperate cry for God, knowing who we are and who He is. The Bible is clear. This is what Jesus talked about with the word repent. In the Bible is clear there is a real repentance and there's a false repentance. Real repentance means I'm done doing things my way. I'm done with my sin and I'm done with my agenda. You're done with your agenda. I want you to hear just a couple verses. Just, just hear these. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, If anyone wants to be my follower, they must deny themselves. 
take up their cross. Cross was an instrument of death and humiliation. They must take, you have to take up your cross and follow me. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Or James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. You know how humbling begins? It begins by acknowledging to God, I'm a lawbreaker. Do you know that you're a lawbreaker? We are a collection of lawbreakers here today. We've sinned against God and we need to to humble myself for salvation. I know a lot of us here are converted, but I also know there's some here today who are not saved, not born again. So it's good for all of us to be reminded. To humble myself before God means I denounce sins that I have let take root in my life. Racism, hatred, anger, greed, pornography, lust, a filthy mouth, lying tongue, substance abuse. This can go on and on. I denounce these sins that I have let take root and grow in my life. That's gospel humiliation. And then the gospel says, after we humble ourselves, we have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word pastua means I'm all in. Not just I believe some facts, but I'm all in with Christ. Paul says it this way. This is probably the shortest verse that talks how to be saved uh, in the New Testament. Romans 10.9. If you will declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you want to know how to be saved, right there. I have people tell me all kinds of crazy stuff about, you've got to follow the Ten Commandments, you've got to be a good person, you've got to be religious. None of that saves you. Here's how to be saved and right with God. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, when you say Jesus is Lord... That was a big thing in that culture. Why? Because you had two options. You could either say Kaiser Kurios, Caesar's Lord, that's what they often killed Christians for not saying, or you could say Jesus is Lord. Why is the word Lord such a big deal? Well, it goes back to the Hebrew Bible. Hebrew Bible, the divine name for God is Yahweh. Some of you know that. It's used approximately 6,800 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's a lot. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, around 200 B.C. in the Egyptian city of Alexandria, called the Septuagint, translators moving from Hebrew to the Greek Septuagint had to make a decision. What do we do with Yahweh? I mean, here's a word that occurs almost more than the other word, significant word in in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh, the divine name of God. What do we do? And those Greek translators made a decision that they would use the Greek word kurios for Yahweh. And you should know that the Septuagint is the Bible Jesus quotes the most, even over the Hebrew Scriptures. So kurios was kind of a code word Forgot. Now, you could use kurios in a casual sense. It was used on occasion in the New Testament, more of addressing someone in a respectful manner or as sir, but you can tell from context generally what's meant. And Paul uses almost always in the sense of this code word for 
the Lord God. And so that's why this is such a declaration. Jesus, if you say Jesus is Lord, by de facto, you're saying Kaiser is not Kurios. You're saying Jesus is Kurios. That's, that's key. And the second part of it is, if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By saying that, we are in, by, on both counts, we're humbling ourselves. We're repenting and putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question this morning before us is, do you have real repentance or counterfeit repentance? I'm going to close with, I think, my favorite paragraph on pride. When I say I think, it's very painful, but I think it's one of the most articulate paragraphs on pride I've ever seen. It's in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And he writes these words. It's up on the screen. In God, you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And then, ladies and gentlemen and young people, Please pay attention to this last part. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. That's the great danger even of sitting in church and worshiping a false God and having a false salvation. This is a perfect chapter as we get ready to take the Lord's table to ask, do you know Christ? Are you truly born again?